Tattoo 6, Human Freedom. The introductory chapter of the anthology, The Oxford Handbook of Free Will, opens as follows. Quote, the problem of free will and necessity or determinism is perhaps the most voluminously debated of all philosophical problems. That description is perhaps the most voluminously debated according to a recent history of philosophy, that is, Matson and Fogel in 1987. Kane 2001 continues, quote, this situation has not changed at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the new millennium. Indeed, debates about free will have become more voluminous in the past century, especially in the latter half of it, so much so that it has become difficult to keep up with the latest developments, end quote. Kane 2001 aims to be a remedy for those who want to, be keep, to keep up, but much, of course, has been published since it appeared. There can thus be no question here of presenting a survey of the immense literature on the subject, but neither the systematic character of this account nor the method of the SSP requires any such survey. What the SSP's methodology does require is indicated below in 6.2, following some clarifications of terminology in 6.1. 6.1, Terminological Clarifications. Peter von Enmagen, 2008a, proposes the following series of definitions as ones that, quote, serve to explain the system of concepts everyone who thinks about the free will problem should use, end quote. Quote, the free will thesis is the thesis that we are sometimes in the following position with respect to a contemplated future act. We sim simultaneously have both the following abilities, the ability to perform the act and the ability to refrain from performing the act. Determinism is the thesis that the past and the laws of nature together determine at every moment a unique future. End quote. Footnote, formulations of determinism need not be as scientific as is von Wing in Wagen 2008a's. Alternatives could ascribe determinism, determinism to, for example, God or fate. See Kane 2005, 5-6. End of footnote. Back to the quote, quote, quoting von Wagen's definitions. The denial of determinism is indeterminism. Compatibilism is the thesis that determinism and the free will thesis could both be true, and incompatibilism is the denial of compatibilism. Libertarianism is the conjunction of the free will thesis and incompatibilism. Libertarianism thus entails indeterminism. Hard determinism is the conjunction of determinism and incompatibilism. Hard determinism thus entails the denial of the free will thesis. Soft determinism is the conjunction of determinism and the free will thesis. Soft determinism thus entails compatibilism. End quote. To these may be added the following, which characterizes a position defended particularly in numerous works by Galen Strawson. Quote, anti-libertarianism is the denial of the free will thesis, both in conjunction with determinism and in conjunction with indeterminism. End quote. 6.2, adding a theory of human freedom to the structural systematic philosophy. The structural systematic philosophy's method allows Taptu to develop a human freedom by accomplishing three tasks, which mean, need not be tackled wholly sequentially. Footnote, the tasks identified in this paragraph do not correspond directly to the stages in the st structural systematic philosophy's method, see structure and being 41 to 52, but as structure and being emphasizes 138 and following, those stages need not all be fully accomplished and can indeed can be fully accomplished only for relatively few sub-theories within the SSP. End of footnote.
The first task is that of introducing relevant theses and subtheories from the structural systematic philosophy as presented in Structure and Being. The second task is that of integrating these theses and subtheories into an informal theory, adding theses, arguments, and, if needed, subtheories in order to attain relatively maximal coherence and intelligibility. The third step is in part metasystematic. It involves examining alternative theoretical frameworks, including everyday ones, in search of truth candidates whose transformative incorporation into the structural systematic philosophy would increase its coherence and intelligibility, and of ones that, if left unchallenged, could threaten the, yes, the structural systematic philosophy's claim that its theory of human being is human freedom is the best that is currently available. Footnote, important to its claim to being the best available is its being situated within an adequately articulated systematic framework. End of footnote. 6.3, a theory of freedom for the structural systematic philosophy. Structure and Being 4.3.2.5, titled The Ontological Status of Moral Ontological Values, introduces, as there presupposed, the thesis that, quote, human beings as moral beings are free in the strong sense, end quote, a sense that, quote, excludes any compatibility with any form of determinism, end quote. Structure and Being's position on the issue of human freedom is thus libertarian. Structure and Being 4.5.3.4, titled Does World History Have a Meaning?, includes the following argument against determinism. Quote, As a rule, we, we normal human beings, we individuals, politicians, teachers, etc., daily live in situations within which we have to make decisions on which, at times, a great deal depends, concerning both our own lives and the lives of others. Assume that we understood the physically deterministic M-theory and accepted it unrestrictedly. What effect would this have on us in the specific situations in which we would continue to find ourselves? We would then know that everything, including the acts that follow our decisions, is always governed by laws discovered by natural science. We would be faced with decisions, but would know that those decisions and the acts ensuing on them would be governed not by us, but by purely physical processes. What sense would it then make for us to act? If we knew in advance that our acts had completely natural scientific explanations, then decisions would be purely illusions, albeit illusions that themselves would be explained fully by the M-theory. If we were convinced of that, if we knew that, then all talk of freedom and responsibility would be nonsense, mere blather. What this shows is the following. Confronted with the unavoidability of deciding to do one thing or another, we would all, in practice, reject or indeed refute by our acts the thus understood putatively all-explaining M-theory. This would be the case even if one acknowledged that the M-theory did not exclude various indeterminacies, because such indeterminacies would in no way suffice to make intelligible or do justice to the usually daily situations within which we have to make decisions. The reason is that such indeterminacies cannot explain the basic fact that the decisions are our decisions, for which we are responsible, that they are not the result of chance occurrences, however they may be understood, because if they were, they simply would not be ours, end quote. This argument involves, on the one hand, a family of theoretical frameworks, numbers of which, members of which are relied on by human beings in their everyday lives, and on the other, the framework utilized in Hawking, Stephen Hawking's 2001, The Universe in a Nutshell. For the structural systematic philosophy, everyday frameworks are important sources of truth candidates, and indeed include some truth candidates, the propositions expressed by what it calls immediate sentences, that are, quote, absolutely indisputable, end quote. That from Structure and Being 273. Structure and Being includes the examples I'm thinking and I'm awake, 
the two, two Ds may be added, I'm trying to decide what to do, or I'm deliberating, and I've decided to cut class today. Moreover, a thesis included in the argument introduced above is that human beings often cannot avoid deliberating, that is, trying to decide what to do. Richard Taylor, 1961-1992, clarifies deliberation as follows. Whenever I deliberate, Quote, whenever I deliberate, I find that I make certain presuppositions, whether I actually think of them or not. That is, I assume that certain things are true, certain things which are such that if I thought they were not true, it would be impossible for me to deliberate at all. Some of these can be listed as follows. First, I find that I can deliberate only about my own behavior and never about the behavior of another. Second, I find that I can deliberate only about future things, never things past or present. Third, I cannot deliberate about what I shall do if I already know what I'm going to do. And finally, I cannot deliberate about what to do, even though I may not know what I'm going to do, unless I believe that it is up to me what I'm going to do. If I am within the power of another person or at the mercy of circumstances over which I have no control, then although I may have no idea what I'm going to do, I cannot deliberate about it. I can only wait and see. End quote. This accurate account of everyday deliberation, in conjunction with the unavoidability of deliberation, makes clear that everyday frameworks must be libertarian. An example clarifies. Presumably, for the vast majority of human beings, it is impossible to deliberate about whether or not the sun will rise tomorrow, although it is, of course, possible to think about that. The reason deliberation is impossible is that according to the everyday frameworks most human relies on, the sun's rising or not rising is, in the language of Taylor 1961-1992, a matter of circumstances beyond human control. Footnote. Exceptional frameworks are not impossible. Near the end of the film Black Orpheus, the young boys Benedetto and Zecca rely on a framework that includes the theses that the sun's rising in the past has depend on Orpheus's guitar playing and that Orpheus, now dead, is unable to play his guitar. Deliberation leads to Zecca's playing the guitar. As he does so, the sun rises. The boys' deliberation presupposes their acceptance of the theses that the sun's rising at least may be up to them, and that playing or not playing the guitar is up to Zeka. End footnote. Any human be being relying on an everyday framework, including a governing thesis according to which everything that happens is beyond human control, any according to which, again in the language of Taylor 1961-1992, nothing is up to the human being relying on that framework, would be unable to deliberate. To be sure, a given human being might claim to be a determinist, but if that human being also engaged in deliberation, that engagement would reveal that the deterministic thesis played no governing role, precisely because if it, it did play such a role, it would make deliberation impossible. That everyday frameworks are libertarian is a thesis version of which is included even in the anti-libertarian works of Galen Strawson, many of which include the following example. Quote, Suppose you set off for a shop on the evening of a national holiday intending to buy a cake with your last 10-pound note. On the steps of the shop, someone is shaking an Oxfam tin. You stop, and it seems completely clear to you that it is entirely up to you what to do next. That is, it seems to you that you are truly, radically free to choose in such a way that you will be ultimately morally responsible for whatever you do choose. Even if you believe that determinism is true, and that you will in five minutes' time be able to look back and say that what you did was determined, this does not seem to undermine your sense of the absoluteness and inescapability of your freedom and of your moral responsibility for your choice. The same to be, seems to be true even if you accept the validity of the basic argument, which is considered below in 6.3.1.2, 
which concludes that one cannot in any way be in any way ultimately responsible for the way one is and decides. In both cases, it remains true that as one stands there, one's freedom and true moral responsibility seem obvious and absolute to one." Unquote. The argument from structure and being introduced above includes the following premise. Quote, assume that we understood the physically deterministic M theory and accepted it as unrest- and accepted it unrestrictedly. End quote. An individual's accepting this theory unrestrictedly would require not only accepting it as a component of a theory in physics, but in addition incorporating versions of it into every theoretical framework the individual relied on, including the individual's everyday framework or frameworks. But given the unavoidable, if perhaps often implicit, inclusion of libertarian theses in everyday frameworks, such incorporation is impossible. Hence, quote, we would all in practice reject or indeed refute by our acts the thus understood putatively all explaining M theory, end quote. The refutation is practical in the following sense. As Taylor 1961-1992 emphasizes, one who genuinely accepted determinism rather than merely verbally espousing it would be unable to deliberate. That human beings engage in acts of deliberating thus establishes that they accept libertarianism. An additional question is the following. What if the acceptance of M theory was not unrestricted? That is, what if the M theory was accepted as true only relative to a theoretical framework for physical cosmology? Or, more technically, what results from comparison within meta-frameworks of everyday libertarian frameworks to non-everyday frameworks such as that of Hawking 2001, which include deterministic or other anti-libertarian theses. The structural systematic philosophy's answer is clear. Given its thesis that being is universally intelligible, the structural systematic philosophy cannot accept theses that comparisons within meta-frameworks reveal to be inconsistent. Such comparison reveals the libertarian thesis to be incompatible with any anti-libertarian thesis and hence any deterministic thesis. Hence, either the libertarian thesis or all anti-libertarian and deterministic theses must be rejected. The libertarian thesis cannot be rejected, so the anti-libertarian and deterministic theses must be rejected. Footnote, from this it does not follow that according to the SSP, all theoretical frameworks must explicitly include libertarian theses. Every investigation with a restricted universal discourse excludes various topics. Human freedom can, of course, be one of those. Hence, for example, a theory in physics with a deterministic thesis would, according to the structural systematic philosophy, leave out of its consideration the fact that human beings are free. The unavoidable inconsistency between the determinism or anti-libertarianism of any non-everyday theoretical framework and the libertarianism of everyday frameworks can be clarified by consideration of two, among enormously many, merely apparent meta-framework inconsistencies that, because merely apparent, are in no way problematic. The first is introduced above in section 2.3 in clarification of the structural systematic philosophy's central theses concerning theoretical frameworks. According to everyday frameworks, the sun rises and sets every day, whereas according to the currently best astronomical frameworks, the sun is stable relative to the earth, and the earth rotates around its own axis and revolves around the sun. Comparison of these theses within a meta-framework reveals that the everyday thesis can non-problematically be understood as the thesis that the sun changes its position relative to human beings on earth independently of the movements made by those human beings. This is fully consistent with the thesis that this change in position is best explained as contemporary astronomy explains it. A second example. 
According to common everyday frameworks, the water poured into a glass is liquid, and the glass into which it is poured is a solid. According to contemporary science, however, not only is the glass composed more of energy and perhaps space than of anything that could qualify as solid, but even on the macroscopic level, glass, according to some theories, is not solid, but is instead, like toothpaste and shaving cream, a soft, condensed material. Comparison of these theses within a meta-framework reveals that the everyday theses can non-problematically be understood as involving the theses that when poured into a glass, water changes its shape and the glass doesn't, and that the water doesn't leak out of the glass. These theses, like the ones about sun and earth, are fully consistent with the theses that both glass and water are composed of bosons and fermions, and that the glass is a soft, condensed material that is stable enough to hold water, to be held and drunk from, and to survive repeated washings. Metaframework comparison allows no such reconciliation of the libertarian thesis with any determinism or anti-libertarianism, so inconsistency is avoided only if one of them is rejected. Again, the libertarian thesis cannot be rejected because human beings cannot avoid deliberating, so determinisms and anti-libertarianisms must be rejected. An additional argument, including structure and being, adds another facet to its case against determinism. Structure and being, page 353, note 55, relies on the following formulation from Nagel 1987's consideration of deterministic explanations of human reasoning. Quote, I have to be able to believe that the evolutionary explanation is consistent with the proposition that I follow the rules of logic because they are correct, not merely because I am biologically programmed to do so. But to believe that, I have to be justified independently in believing that they are correct, and this I cannot be merely on the basis of my contingently actual psychological disposition, together with the hypothesis that it is the product of natural selection. I can have no justification for trusting reason as the capacity I have as a consequence of natural selection unless I am justified in trusting it simply in itself, that is, believing what it tells me in virtue of the contents of the arguments it delivers, end quote. A different way to reach a conclusion highly similar to Nagel 1987's is by considering the issue of semantic determination introduced above in section 3.3. Nagel 1987 considers a position according to which the semantic status of any sentence expressing something any given human being believed would be made explicit by the prefix of the operator, I am biologically programmed to believe that. Note here biologically programmed means roughly Beliefs result from that beliefs result from collections of purely physical events, including events within the brain. End of footnote. One sentence, one accepting this position would accept as expressing one of their beliefs would be the following. S. All my beliefs result exclusively from biological programming. The semantic status of S is undetermined unless it can be made explicit by the prefixing of the restricted biological programming operator, as in the following sentence, S prime. I am biologically programmed to believe that all my beliefs result exclusively from biological programming. S prime is, of course, itself an indicative sentence, because it is, its semantic status is underdetermined unless it can be made explicitly by the following, S double prime. I am biologically programmed to believe that I am biologically programmed to believe that all my beliefs result exclusively from biological programming. S double prime, like every sentence governed by the restricted biological programming operator, is an indicative sentence whose semantic status is determined, according to the position under consideration, unless it can be made explicit by the prefixing of that operator. 
The result, obviously, is an infinite regress. The regress is avoided only by the inclusion of the unrestricted theoretical operator, it is true that, or an equivalent formulation. What then about what might be expressed by an utterance of the sentence, it is true that all my beliefs result exclusively from biological programming? In this case, the theoretical operator cannot stop the regress because its argument in this sentence requires that it, it that its ultimately governing operator be the biological programming operator. Because of its argument, the sentence could be determined as presenting a proposition as true only by the sentence, I am bi biologically programmed to believe that it is true that all my beliefs result from biological programming, but the operating governing, operator governing that sentence brings with it the infinite regress described above. There is an additional relevant point relating to the passage introduced above from Nagel 1987. That passage suggests that human reasoning consists exclusively in following the rules of logic. The structural systematic philosophy emphasizes that such forms of reasoning as inferences to the best explanation or systemization, for example, require extra-logical considerations. See Structure and Being, pages 43 and 244. More broadly, according to the structural systematic philosophy, all theoretical frameworks human beings actually rely on when theorizing must include, explicitly or implicitly, modes of what are often termed inconclusive or plausible reasoning, including reasoning concerning how to proceed. Because this is the case, all theoreticians, when engaged in theoretical activity, must deliberate. They must at times deliberate about which lines of inquiry to pursue, how to set up experiments, how to formulate their results, and so forth. For just that reason, the frameworks on which they rely as they theorize are libertarian frameworks. Footnote, ironically, the fact that human beings are not free to include deterministic or anti-libertarian theses within theoretical frameworks on which they rely when theorizing, and often not free not to deliberate, contribute to stabilizing the truth of libertarianism. Back to the main text, as a result, the libertarian thesis is an absolute truth precisely in that a version of it is at least implicitly included in any theoretical framework that can be relied on by any human being. 6.3.1, responses to some objections from the literature. 6.3.1.1, Teller, 1961-1992. Dager, <coughs> excuse me, 1961-1992, argues that both determinism and what it calls simple indeterminism, according to which some events occur at random, are inconsistent with the libertarian data introduced above in section 6.3. It restates those data as including the following two theses. Quote, one, that my behavior is sometimes the outcome of deliberation, and two, that in these and other cases it is sometimes up to me what I do, end quote. The work argues as well that the only position consistent with these data is, although it does not use the term, libertarianism. In its words, quote, the only conception of action that accords with our data is one according to which people are sometimes, but of course not always, self-determining beings, that is, beings that are sometimes the causes of their own behavior. In the case of an action that is free, it must not only be such that it is caused by the agent who performs it, but also that no antecedent conditions were sufficient for his performing just that action. In the case of an action that is both free and rational, it must be such that the agent who performed it did so for some reason, but this reason cannot have been the cause of it, end quote. The work asserts that, quote, this conception fits what people take themselves to be, end quote, but then raises the following objections, quote, this conception of activity and of an agent who is the cause of it involves two rather strange metaphysical notions that are never applied anywhere else in nature. 
first is that of a self or person, for example, a man who is not merely a collection of things or events, but a self-moving being. Second, this conception of activity involves an extraordinary conception of causation, according to which an agent, which is a substance and not an event, can nevertheless be the cause of an event. End quote. A first point to be noted is that it appears that Taylor 1961-1992 central and perhaps only reasoning for deeming self or person to be a rather strange metaphysical notion is that it is never applied anywhere else in nature. The structural systematic philosophy's response is that this lack of application elsewhere in nature is in no way problematic or even surprising. According to the structural systematic philosophy, human beings differ from all other natural entities in a great variety of ways, so any adequate ontology must include factors pertaining only to them. Footnote. Near its end, Taylor 1961-1999 acknowledges the unique status of human beings. Quote, the world is mysterious, and we who try to understand it are even more so. End quote. If indeed human beings are more mysterious than the non-human world, then adequate theories concerning human beings will have to contain, in the words of Taylor 1961-1999, notions that are never applied elsewhere in nature. Back to the main text. So, as I said before the footnote, according to the structural systematic philosophy, human beings differ from all other natural entities in a great variety of ways, so any adequate ontology must include factors pertaining only to them. Being a self or person is one of those, and being an agent is another. Of agency, Taylor 1961-1992 objects not only that it characterizes nothing in nature other than human beings, but also that it cannot be accounted for by the ontology the work presupposes. Just why it cannot is perhaps clarified by the following, quote, No one seems able, as we have noted, to describe deliberation without metaphors, and the conception of a thing's being within one's power or up to him seems to defy analysis or definition altogether, if taken in the sense of the, that the theory of agency appears to require, end quote. It is not clear what Taylor 1961-1999 would require by way of analysis or definition, but it is important to note that children begin early on to converse about their powers, presumably most commonly by talking about what they can and can't do, and to understand situations in which they are told that something is up or other is up to them. As for the metaphors required to describe deliberation, a putative example is talk of, quote, trying to anticipate consequences of various possible courses of action, end quote, but nothing in this phrase is problematically metaphorical. Taylor 1961-1992 says of it in addition that, quote, such descriptions do not convey to us what deliberation is unless we already know, end quote, but anyone capable of understanding such a description, of course, does already know what deliberation is, having experienced it repeatedly while acquiring the linguistic confidence required for understanding the description. In addition, if human beings did not know what it means to try to anticipate consequences of various possible courses of action, it is wholly unclear why their languages would or even could develop so as to enable them to talk of such matters. One final passage from Taylor 1961-1992 merits brief consideration. It reads, quote, Deliberation becomes, on the libertarian view, something that is not only possible but quite rational, for it does make sense to deliberate about activity that is truly my own and that depends in its outcome on me as its author, and not merely on something more or less esoteric that is supposed to be in intimately associated me, such as my thoughts, volitions, and choices. End quote. Here again, problematic presuppositions are at work. What is esoteric about thoughts, volitions, and choices? 
It appears empirically to be the case that all natural languages enable their users to converse intelligibly about what they think, what they want, and choices they have made or are confronted with. At least often, children begin to use this language when they are quite young. The child who is told, we have to go now, so if you don't decide which kind of ice cream you want, you won't be able to have any, is not typically baffled. Instead, the child understands the alternatives presented by the sentence and often exercises the capacity, or in Taylor 1961-1992's term, power, to make a choice. Talk of thoughts, volitions, and choices is thus exoteric, not esoteric. We often deliberate when we have conflicting wants. When we deliberate, we do so by thinking, and we often conclude deliberation by choosing, sometimes choosing to postpone deliberation. Theories denying that human beings have thoughts and volitions and that they make choices are the ones that qualify as esoteric. 6.3.1.2, Strawson. As indicated above in section 6.3, several works presented by Galen Strawson between 1986 and at least 2011 present versions of what they call a basic argument putatively establishing the truth of anti-libertarianism. One version of the argument is the following from Strawson 2008. Quote, one, interested in free action, we are particularly interested in actions that are performed for a reason, as opposed to reflex actions or mindlessly habitual actions. Two, when one acts for a reason, what one does is a function of how one is, mentally speaking. It is also a function of one's height, one's strength, one's place in time, and so on, but the mental factors are crucial when moral responsibility is in question. Three, so if one is to be truly responsible, Responsible for how one acts, one must be truly responsible for how one is, mentally speaking, at least in certain respects. Four, but to be truly responsible for how one is, mentally speaking, in certain respects, one must have brought it about that one is the way one is, mentally speaking, in certain respects. And it is not merely that one must have caused oneself to be the way one is, mentally speaking, one must have consciously and explicitly chosen to be the way one is, mentally speaking. In certain respects, in certain respects, and one must have succeeded in bringing about that one is that way. Five, but one cannot really be said to choose, in a conscious reasoned fashion, to be the way one is, mentally speaking, in any respect at all, unless one already exists, mentally speaking, already equipped with some principles of choice, peace of one, preferences, values, pro-attitudes, ideals, in the light of which one chooses how to be. Six, but then to be truly responsible on account of having chosen to be the way one is, mentally speaking, in certain respects, one must be truly responsible for one's having the principles of choice, peace of one, in the light of which one can choose how to be. Seven, but for this to be so, one must have chosen peace of one in a reasoned, conscious, intentional fashion. Eight, but for this, that is seven, to be so, one must already have had some principles of choice, peace of two, in the light of which one chose peace of one. Nine, and so on. Here we are setting out on a regress that we cannot stop. True self-determination is impossible because it requires the actual completion of an infinite series of choices, of principles of choice. Footnote 2 from Strauss's article. That is, the infinite series must have a beginning and an end, which is impossible. End of footnote. 10. So true moral responsibility is impossible because it requires true self-determination, as is noted in 3. End quote. Strawson 2008 was written, it says, quote, in the hope that anyone who thinks that we can be truly or ultimately morally responsible for our actions will be prepared to say exactly what is wrong with the basic argument, end quote. According to the structural systematic philosophy, it's central, it, it, 
according to the structural systematic philosophy, its central error, a fatal one, is its failure to clarify what is involved in choosing, quote, in a reasonable, conscious, intentional fashion, end quote. Specifically, it fails to recognize the facts, one, that human beings confronted with choices to be made or acts to be done in light of reasons can and indeed often do have, among their principles of choice, a preference for proceeding rationally, involving something like a pro-attitude towards the value of truth. And two, that human beings who choose to proceed rationally and succeed in doing so precisely thereby transcend the principles of choice that they happen to have acquired in the course of their previous experience and that they can examine and evaluate those principles in part by comparing them with other principles of which they can become aware by thinking, conversing with others, and reading. Perhaps ironically, but not wholly surprisingly, Strauss in 2008 appears elsewhere to acknowledge that human beings can proceed rationally in reporting its author's belief that, quote, it is the natural light, not fear, end quote, and not any idiosyncratic preferences, values, proattitudes, or ideals that has led all of his students, not misled by religious convictions, to confirm the validity and soundness of the basic argument. A closely related objection to the basic argument it emerges from re recognition that Strauss in 2008 fails to take into consideration the fact that moral responsibility is only one of many forms of human responsibility. Of central importance is what may be termed intellectual responsibility. If indeed Strauss in 2008 presents a theory, if it is not, for example, an elaborate joke or satire, then it is a work whose author, in presenting the completed work, accepts responsibility for presenting as true the thesis that ultimately ultimate moral responsibility for human beings is impossible. The author discharges this responsibility by presenting and defending the work's various versions of the basic argument. It should be clear, given the discussion above of the restricted biologically programmed operator, Strauss in 2008, like every work that presents a theory, must contain sentences covered ultimately by the theoretical operator, it is true that, or some equivalent. Theoreticians who choose to assess such sentences instead of investigating other subject matters attempt first to determine whether or not they are indeed true, relying on procedures that involve deliberation and thus presuppose libertarianism. Footnote. A theoretician choosing instead the task of writing a biography of Galen Strawson would not, in the first instance, or perhaps not in any instance, be concerned with determining whether or not the conclusion of the basic argument is true. The biographer would be concerned instead with the truth of such sentences as it is true that Galen Strawson first published a version of the basic argument in 1986. End of footnote. Returning to the topic of moral responsibility, although Strawson, 2008, asserts that, quote, it is important to be precise about what sort of responsibility is under discussion, end quote, it fails to attain the requisite precision. To achieve what it presents as the requisite precision, it introduces, quote, the story of heaven and hell, end quote, quoting from a slightly different place. As I understand it, true moral responsibility is responsibility of such a kind that, if we had it, then it makes sense, at least, to suppose that it could be just to punish some of us with eternal torment in hell and reward others with eternal bliss in heaven. This sentence, on which the work does not elaborate, fails to make clear whether all who did not merit eternal reward would, would merit eternal torment, or whether instead there might be one or more such options, such as purgatory or reincarnation. Strassen 2008 suggests that such clarifications are unnecessary because the understanding of ultimate moral responsibility it articulates is widely hailed, held. Without providing any empirical support, the P P 
piece asserts that this is, quote, the kind of moral responsibility, end quote, or, quote, sort of moral responsibility, end quote, that many suppose we have that, quote, has for a long time been central to the Western religious, moral, and culture, cultural tradition, end quote, that it is, quote, widely believed in, end quote, quote, that many have supposed themselves to have and that many do still suppose themselves to have that we ordinarily suppose, that is, a strong, natural, strong understanding of the notion, end quote, and that is, quote, central to ordinary thought about moral responsibility and justice, end quote. To support its denial that its sense of moral responsibility is exclusively Western, the article asserts the following, quote, it is significant that anthropologists have suggested that most human societies can be classified either as guilt cultures or as shame cultures. It is true that neither of these two fundamental moral emotions necessarily presupposes a conception of oneself as truly morally responsible for what one has done, but the fact that both are widespread does at least suggest that a conception of moral responsibility similar to our own is a natural part of the human moral conceptual repertoire, end quote. Strauss in 2008 fails to note that, quote, a conception of moral responsibility similar to our own, end quote, is a, conce is a conception that is different from from our own, or more accurately, the article zone, to a greater or lesser degree. 6.3.2, Human Freedom and the Natural Sciences. 6.3.2.1, Human Freedom and the Physical Domain. One objection often raised against libertarianism is that libertarian theories remain inadequate in that they fail to include accounts of just how an event in the mental domain, for example, the event of deciding to raise a hand during a discussion, triggers an event in the physical domain, the movement of the hand. The structural systematic philosophy agrees that this is a theoretical issue open to investigation, but notes the current unavailability of any theoretical frameworks within which such investigation can take place. The structural systematic philosophy also notes the following. First, presumably all theories that recognize mental as well as physical domains acknowledge that there are cases in which physical events are involved in triggering mental events. As an example, the physical events of light waves striking retinas and the firings of neurons are involved in triggering mental events of visual awareness or of coming to know. Second, there are no currently available theoretical frameworks within which the issue of just how the physical events are involved in triggering the mental events can be investigated. The lack of such frameworks does not bring into que question the thesis that there is such involvement. This may be put less technically. Human beings cannot have visual experience in the sense of seeing their surroundings if, they, if their eyes are closed. Normally, the physical event of the raising of eyelids results in visual experience. How the transition from the physical to the experiential, or mental, takes place is not explained by any available theory. That it takes place reveals that its explanation is a topic open to theoretical investigation. At present, however, the link from the physical domain to the experiential or mental domain is mysterious precisely because of the lack of theoretical explanations of it. But that it is mysterious is not a reason to deny that there is such a link or that developing theoreticals within which frameworks within which can, it can be explained is a s significant theoretical desideratum. The same holds for the link between the experiential or mental domain and the physical domain. My deciding that now is the time for me to raise my hand during the discussion period following a lecture is generally linked to the raising of my hand. The mental event of deciding is linked to the physical event of hand raising. How the transition from the mental to the physical takes place is not explained by any available theory. That it takes place reveals that its explanation is a topic open to theoretical investigation. 
At present, however, the link from the mental domain to the physical domain is mysterious precisely because of the lack of theoretical explanations of it. But that it is mysterious is not a reason to deny that it exists or that developing theoretical frameworks within which it can be explained is a significant theoretical desideratum. The thesis that there are no currently available theories explaining physical to mental links or mental to physical links are, of course, empirical. Development and presentation of such theories would therefore lead to their alteration. 6.3.2.2 Human Freedom and Evolution Human beings emerge during the process of evolution as beings that, under various circumstances, cannot avoid deliberating. Deliberation requires physical energy. Deliberation is linked to events within the brain, and deliberation can have deleterious physical consequences, as when worry leads to insomnia or distractedness while driving, in cases when accidents ensue. If, as according to currently widely accepted epiphenomenal theories, deliberation were not efficacious, if what human beings did resulted wholly from physical events, including prominently ones among them, ones within the brain, then deliberation, and indeed consciousness, would be evolutionarily detrimental. If, on the other hand, as according to the structure of systematic philosophy, deliberation can be efficacious, then it can be evolutionarily advantageous because it can enable human beings to make innovative responses when in novel situations. Hence, libertarianism conjoins with evolutionary theory more coherently and intelligibly than does determinism or anti-libertarianism. Attempts made within non-libertarian frameworks to explain how deliberation could be advantageous cannot avoid relying on libertarian theses. An example reveals the pattern detectable elsewhere. The example is from JJC Smart 2005, a response to the excellent Hodgson 2005 of plain person's free will. The response contains the following passage, quote, It may well be that consciousness in the full sense is just awareness of awareness, coming to believe by inner sense about the brain processes that are coming to believe about the external world. We approximate to mere awareness when we go on to automatic pilot, as Armstrong has put it. The second-order awareness would have evolutionary value because of its monitoring of first-order awareness. Hodgson suggests that if consciousness were not necessary for free choice, then it would confer, confer no selective advantage, and indeed that if one were confronted by a crisis, for example the approach of a tiger, natural selection would not have made us waste our mental power on consciousness, whereas the opposite is the case. If a man-eating tiger approaches a man, he has heightened consciousness. I can agree about the heightened consciousness, but draw a different conclusion. The more critical the situation is, the more important it may be to monitor one's awareness. Crucial here is Smart's 2005's unexplained and unwarranted shift from second-order awareness to monitoring. If it is no shift, if, it, if it is, there is no more to monitoring than there is to awareness, then the alleged evolutionary advantage disappears. If I were merely aware of how my automatic pilot was responding to the approach of the tiger, I might, I suppose, be pleased by my expertise or dismayed by my incompetence, but either would involve either would indeed involve a waste of brain power. If, on the other hand, I am to monitor the autopilot in any sense that has potential evolutionary value, I must be in a position to override it, and that requires a capacity beyond that of mere awareness. But somewhat differently, it appears that Smart 2005's heightened awareness is forced on me precisely when my autopilot fails. Of course, it could be argued that my autopilot has not failed, that it is simply confronted with a problem for which it requires time to compute the solution, but in that case, again, the awareness has no value. I will do whatever my autopilot dictates, 
when the computation has been completed. Within its, its theoretical framework, then, SMART 2005 faces a dilemma that it cannot escape. If its monitoring is no more than awareness, then it is evolutionary de evolutionarily detrimental. It has evolutionary value only if it involves the capacity to intervene, but its intervention would be, in Hodgson 2005's terms, quote, something else that does contribute to the determination of what actually happens, end quote, the free choice perhaps to make the dangerous dive into the river far below rather than to embark on the almost certainly futile foot race or to tremble in terror, etc. 6.3.2.3, Human Freedom and Neuroscience. A number of similar experiments purporting to disprove human freedom manifestly failed to do so. Only the following example, soon et al. 2008, need be considered here. Quote, the subjects were asked to relax while fixating on the center of, a, of the screen where a stream of letters were presented. At some point, when they felt the urge to do so, they were to freely decide between one of two buttons operated by the left and right index fingers and press it immediately. In parallel, they should remember the letter presented when their motor decision was constantly made, consciously made. Most of the intentions, 88.6%, were reported to be consist consciously formed in 1,000 microseconds before the movement, end quote. Among the results was the that the experimenters identified, quote, predictive neural information, end quote, that, quote, will have pre preceded the conscious motor decision by up to 10 seconds, end quote. In other words, brain activity correlated with which button would be push, pushed occurred well before the subjects decided which button to push. It is worth noting first that the actions of the experimental subjects are far from paradigmatically free ones because nothing like deliberation is involved. Instead, the subjects were instructed to respond to their urges to act by deciding. It is far from obvious that they could act in accordance with the instructions. They were to wait until they felt an urge to decide which button to press and then to decide. What is unclear is whether any subject could, could determine which of the following is done. One, unconsciously prepare to pr press a specific button. Then two, press the button on which on feeling the urge to do so. Or A, feel the urge to decide which button to press, then B, make the decision. If there is a plausible candidate for a subject's free decision anywhere on this horizon, it would be the decision to participate in the experiment, in the absence of which the subject would never have felt the requisite urges. 6.4, Human Freedom and Systematic Philosophy. It is well worth noting in closing this chapter that its course of argumentation could not develop without, and is tightly stabilized within, the systematic framework of the structural systematic philosophy. It relies on structural systematic philosophy theses concerning semantic determination, theoretical frameworks, and the necessity that human beings rely on such frameworks. The importance of this systematic consideration is also shown as follows. The sentence, everything I do or say is wholly determined by physical processes in my brain, considered in relative isolation, appears to be intelligible and to be at least possibly true. The course of argumentation central to Taptos chapter 6 shows that if any such sentence is considered not in relative isolation, but instead as a constituent of a theory, and various key factors requisite to the development and presentation of theories are introduced, the sentence proves to be untenable precisely because it cannot be stably situated within any theory developed by any human being. <laughs>